mic change here real quick so I can be hooked up, click, clicked in, whatever the term is, uh, instead of me having to hold a microphone. Uh, I, I do want to say one, a couple of things, actually. Uh, you know, it really is a privilege to know when you, th I mean, we don't think all the time what it, what's going on in the world under the authority of God. God is doing something all around the world. We think about what God is doing through this church, and we know it through our families and how God is using us to reach people, and, and that's here. But what we don't want to lose sight of is what's happening here with our families and our coworkers and our, our church members and everything is happening in his church as well. And that's a great example for us to believe, to see that God is doing the same thing here as he's doing there. Not only is he doing it there, but he's doing it in every place that his name has been hung. You know, God put his name in Jerusalem. He's, he, wanted to, he wanted to hang his name in the city of Jerusalem. Well, every city, every town, every corner that, that, that there is a place where his name to be hung, God is trying to reach people. And we don't want to forget that. So I want to do something. On, on, the, on the prayer list, there's a, it's a little bitty box. And I just want to mention this. We started, I think it's important for you. To, one of the coolest things that you could ever do as a Christian is go on a mission trip. Because you get a chance to meet people like him and see what God is doing, not just him, but his church, and see the people and the love that they have. You've got to imagine what it's like in living in a, in a Hindu country where most of the Hindus don't like what you believe. But they still minister. They still believe and they still worship. And it's an awesome thing to see. So let me, now we're not going to India anytime soon, although I'd love to go back. And one day we will go and, and hook up with uh, Pastor Rotten there. But there's three, four trips that I want to mention real quick. We've got a team going to Monmouth, Illinois uh, in the first part of November. Um, Ray, Ray Blowers is leading that team. It's a trip that we take every year. We go to Monmouth. We take 15 to 18 people on that team, and we, we basically do a VBS. What We did VBS here this summer. We're going to do it there for their kids during their missions conference, just like they came down and did a VBS for our kids back in April. And we've been tag-teaming that back and forth for a good number of years now. You can be a part of that team. I want to encourage you to talk to Ray. It's a minimal cost. You get to, you get to meet new people. Uh, you don't have to worry much about lodging and food. It's all pretty much taken care of. I think that most of the costs that we're charging people is or asking people to contribute to the cost is about 50 bucks a person. That covers the gas, the supplies, uh, the needs for the team to go. And it's really inexpensive, but Ray can tell you more details of that. So that's a trip in November. We also have another trip in November that Mitchell, Newland, and Jody are leading to Oaxaca, Mexico. And... Uh, I uh, dealt with Joe and, and uh, Amy. Uh, uh, what I just went blank. Hendricksman, thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry, my brain didn't work all the time anymore. Uh, so anyway, the Hendricksmans. So this will be a, a trip down there. It's going to be an awesome trip. There's there's some um, there's outreach. There's evangelism. There's children's teaching. There's there's Bible studies, and there's a little bit of construction. So we need people that can uh, get their back into the work. And so if you want to go, talk to Mitch. And uh, they'll give you the information. Uh, and then, um, why is there no, I know, okay, so the Boston trip is full. Um, the rest of them on this list is actually needs to come off of that list. London we're not going to, right? And uh, and Romania we're not going to. 
So I know, just, you can be a part of a mission trip. Um, oh, I know what the other place is. I'm sorry. It's not on this list. And that's the Dominican Republic with uh, Lee Carter. And uh, Steve Fleshman is leading that team. And so that's going in uh, August, I think, or that's an October trip. October, October 4th to 10th, 4 to 10. So talk to Steve Fleshman, get the details for that. Uh, that's, a, that's a really easy trip. I mean, and, and who doesn't want to go to the Caribbean? I mean, come on. You know, you're really going on vacation. You know, you get right down to it, but you get credit. You get credit to your account for being on a mission trip and serving God in a Caribbean retreat island. What a great way to serve God. So anyway, think about that. Pray about it. I want you to do those things. I want you to consider going on a trip. You get to meet people like Rotten, and you get to see God work, and I'm encouraging you to do that. Okay, so I'm going to transition now. Um, so we got about 30 minutes, and I think I can do this whole the whole lesson in 30 minutes. What we want to talk about is, uh, so we've been, been discussing uh, the apologetics here. Julie has a handout for tonight's notes. I mean, you probably already have them, but if you didn't get one or lost it, Julie, will, she'll, she'll come around and, and get you some. Uh, and so we're talking about uh, the, the the topic is the morality morality. We're going to talk about evil and suffering, but not tonight. We're just going to do morality tonight, and then next week, uh, next Wednesday night, we'll be talking about uh, um, evil and suffering. So, are we up there? Yeah, we're up there. Okay. So, just as a reminder, where we're at, um, we have this verse in First Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, which has been our marching orders for this. I guess I turned this thing on. Here we go. That's not the verse. Well, anyway, if you look at First Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, you ought to have it by memorized by now. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that phrase uh, that um, to give, be ready, give to give an answer is the Greek word apologia, which is where we get the big fancy word apologetics, which is what we call this study is called apologetics. But the um, uh, the mandate from Peter gives us a foundation for being ready to answer a question, to be ready to, to why do you have the hope that you have? Everybody that's a believer has has the hope. You're carrying a hope in you that you one day you'll see Jesus Christ face to face. You'll be in heaven if you're a believer and you've been saved. You will. So that's the hope that we have. And the other hope that we have is we want everybody else to be saved as well. But uh, being ready means that you need to be trained in the art of offering a reasonable explanation. That's what this study has been for the last two-plus months that we've been going through this now. Uh, we've been answering a lot of questions. The challenge that a lost person would have is show me God or how do you know that there's really a God? How can you possibly believe in a God that you cannot see? Nobody can touch him, none of that. And so, so, so we've been going through and answering a lot of questions. This is a proof for God. This is a proof for God. We had we, last week we talked about uh, man, uh, where man came from, the connection if, if there isn't doesn't exist, the connection to the ape. Uh, we talked about fossils. We've talked about um, evolutionary concepts, and we've talked about a lot of different things here. But the word apologetics means to offer a defense or a reply with a valid answer to any skeptic who seeks to want to know why you have this hope that you want them to have as well. 
So uh, evangelism, now, so the difference between this and evangelism, evangelism is giving people the good news. So this is a little bit different. The good news is that Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day, and he's in heaven alive today. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Uh, the, uh, but the this is just not trying to save people. We're not trying to get people saved through, the, through an answer to this question. What we're trying to do is give them a reason why we have the hope, why we know that there is a God. The salvation of the lost is paramount, but our, this is not about trying to convince them to be a believer. We're not trying to con- change their mind. Paul writes in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, he says, In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. We want them to acknowledge the truth, and we're giving them the knowledge of the truth. But then we also, not only do we want to answer a question, but then we want to share the gospel. That's kind of how they link together. So as we're getting close to the end of this study, we've only got a few more uh, topics that we want to cover. It's important to consider evidence that is less science, because we've talked a lot about science uh, over the last several weeks. We talked about uh, different kinds of things. Uh, but, we, but we want to kind of focus on some different things here. We want to do less evidence on science and more on behavior, the evidence that we have in behavior. So today we're going to discuss the moral argument and the challenge from evil and suffering next week. So those are the big challenges that, that lost people have or, or atheistic mindset people have. So let's go, we're going to talk about morality. So every person, every person, atheist or theist, so if you're a believer in God, then you would, I would call you a theist and we're atheist. The A at the beginning means you're anti-the, you don't believe in, you don't accept the theism of God. So whether you're an atheist or a theist, you agree that there is a, and what I would call a moral dance between what we disagree with and the source of morals themselves. Where do morals come from? There's this kind of two, this step that goes back and forth about where does this come from? The moral argument is a common sense argument and it's frustrating at the same time. Um, Let me give you an example of that frustration. So this guy here, Frederick Nietzsche, some of you may have heard this guy before. You may have even read some of his his works. He was a philosopher, German philosopher back in the uh, early 20th century. He said this, and this is a very similar concept that many people would argue right now. You have your way of doing things. I have my way of doing things. As for the right way, it doesn't exist. So your way or my way or... You do your way, I do my way. You know, like uh, some people like to, you know, barbecue ribs, and some people just like to eat them. You, know, you do your thing, I do my thing. But there's no right thing, it's, and that's that's how a lot of people believe. There is no right thing. It's just what you accept and what I accept. Then that's different. So the question then, the question of right or wrong, is at the heart of any discussion of the of the concept of morality. Um. So let me just let me run a list, and you tell me if this is right or wrong or good or bad or whatever. Is it okay, sometimes or always wrong, is it okay to torture babies for fun? Well, that's a moral statement. You just answer with a moral position, okay? Because some people think it's fun to, more, to, to, to torture babies. You know, those are the ones that we call child, child molesters. Okay, another question. Is it... Is, the Indian practice of the widow burning called sati. Is this correct? Sati? 
burning the widow with the body of her dead husband. Is that okay? No, you never heard of that. I've seen it. It's, it's a morbid thought. But we have a man up here who says, yep, that's a real thing. Is it okay for a priest to sexually abuse children and church authorities to cover it up? Is it okay? Everything, these are moral, these are questions on, based on morality and your answers are moral positions. Is it okay to rape? Is it okay to murder? Is it okay for those things? Oscar Wilde, a Irish poet in the 19th century, this is what his said, this is his take on what's good or bad or whatever. Nothing succeeds like excess. Nothing is good or bad, only charming or dull. Okay, so I would ask, if he, if he was here today, I would ask him this question. Is this picture, is this a charming picture or is it a dull picture or is this a wrong picture? You may not recognize that, but that is the uh, dead bodies from uh, one of the uh, Jewish prison camps in Germany during World War II. He would think, well, he would probably say, well, that's a little dull. You know, I don't think it's charming or dull. I think it's the sick, disgusting behavior. Uh, declaring something always wrong is the same as declaring that there are objective moral values and duties in life. And some people don't like to have objective moral values put on their life or assigned to their life, or they certainly don't like a church or a Christian saying, your behavior is wrong, it's, it's immoral of what you're doing, and they say, well, who do you think you are telling me what my morals ought to be? We're, that's what we're talking about today, that discussion. Let's get right down to it. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's Isaiah 50, verse 5, verse 20. Woe unto those that want to call evil good and good evil. That's what's happening today, isn't it? I mean, today you see it no matter where you're at. You can, you can you hear it on the radio. You see it on the news, on TV. You get it every place you go. Uh, that's good. Now, to that behavior uh, of dealing with children, for example, uh, that behavior is good now, but 25 years ago it was bad. So what was good is good, now evil, and what was what is evil is now good. So there's very few people who would deny that something acts or is always wrong. Uh, people may espouse relativism, but they demand absolutes. You ever notice that about people? They demand, they want relativism, but they demand absolutes when it comes to their situation, whatever it is. People, you know, when you watch people, you watch how they react to being wronged. And that proves what they want, and that that rep, that that's that's you want to know how to identify um, absolute morality. See how they behave. Everybody would behave pretty much the same way. For example, steal from a relativist, let them be the victim of false advertising, and watch how they respond with their spouse when their spouse is relatively faithful to them versus absolutely faithful to them. And the reaction showcases the relationship of absolute authority. Because they want to do whatever they want to do, but as soon as their spouse goes out on them, now I need the absolute behavior. I just, you know, that's, that's part of it. 
Okay, so what is the nature of morality? I'm going to kind of go through this because I want to get through this tonight. I don't have a lot of notes, pages here, but I do have a lot of material. So I am going to go quick, so I apologize for that. So the nature of morality. So moral norms are known. That's one of your blanks. Moral norms are known. If they're not known, then we're all skeptics. Some of the some of the atheistic world will claim that moral there are no morals. We can't know what morals are. We just live. We just exist. Do whatever we do. But so if that's the case, if they're not known, then we're all skeptics about how to behave. Moral norms are not physical. We can't discover them with the five senses. That's part of the problem with proving morality versus anything else is you can't measure morality. You can't run a test on it in the lab. It's, 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 it's not physical. Moral norms are, are a form of communication and is found in imperative statements and commands. For example, this is a moral statement out of the Bible, John chapter 14, verse 15. It says, if you love me, anybody remember that verse? If you love me, keep my commandments. That is a moral statement coming out of Jesus Christ because he's given you a commandment. If you love me, keep my commandments. So there is an incumbency to act when you have moral values at stake. There's an incumbency to, to moral norms, meaning what that means basically is this. There, there's, there, is an, there, there is an oughtness or a compellingness to act. There's an oughtness to act on whatever the circumstance. Like, you all got riled up when I said, is it okay to abuse kids? You all kind of, I mean, you may not have really jumped up and you started screaming, but in your heart you want to like, I just want to just destroy the person that wants to abuse kids. That's, that's an oughtness. We ought to deal with that. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. We ought to work. We ought to, we ought to do something or behaviors will slip. We call that a slippery slope on the, on the, on the, uh, um, the pundit radio programs. They always talk about, oh, we're going down a slippery slope. Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1 says we should not let them slip. When we, next, next one is when we break a significant and clear moral rule, it is usually accompanied by feelings of painful guilt and sometimes shame. David writes in Psalm chapter 51, verse 4. Many of you are familiar with this verse or this passage. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. So let me just say this. Based on all of that, only psychopaths overcome their conscience, allowing them to violate moral values and moral norms. Only psychopaths overcome their conscience and ignore that and they overcome what, what, their, what their conscience is telling them. Where does morality come from? This is part of the discussion when you get into an argument with an atheist. Where do, where, where, what is the source of objective moral values and duties? So we've got several choices we're going to go through. There's four possible sources, actually. Four possible sources of objective moral values. And this is the atheist position. They, they come from the universe. Moral values are just are. They just are. Okay, so 
that doesn't even make sense. Because we're not talking about something that's physical, but it, somehow or another the universe is going to de- determine what your morals are. We'll get to it in more detail here in just a moment. Um, so the second one then is the individual. This is where most atheists land. Each person goes about to establish their own objective morality. So my objective morality is different than your objective morality, and mine is right and yours is right, and there is no right, there is no thing in the middle. The number three is culture. Culture is a big article today of of this conversation, especially in the last five years. Culture means, means that the culture decides by the group, the group, the cultural group, they decide what is moral behavior, good or bad. So, and I don't want to pick out a group in, that you may know about right now that's trying to tell you how you should behave. That's, they're trying to impose their morals on you, and we're saying that ain't going to happen. The last one, which you guys ought to, you ought to figure this out pretty easily, the transcendent creator. That's the source of morality that we're really going to get to. So let's go back and let's, let's, uh, let's peel the onion on each one of these. The first one, if it comes from the universe, this is, I mean, this is an amazing statement. By what I mean by coming from the, from the universe is that an objective moral value and duties are part of the evolutionary path. Okay, so we talk, we've already, we've already shot down evolution over the last several weeks and why evolution. Remember, evolution is either, um, uh, um, I'm sorry, I just, I just had it in the head and it drew a blank. Um, what is the word I'm looking for? Mutations, um, natural selection, those types of things, all of those things somehow produced a moral standard for you to live by. The problem with the, with this is that there is a, that, that, or a, there's a random purposelessness and meaningless universe determines your moral obligations. That's what the, that's what the argument would be. It just came from the universe. Um, I watch a lot of videos on YouTube and I, I see some of these videos where people go and they interview people. Where do your morals come from? And you know, they say, well, the universe, they just are, they're just there. Or there are no, there are no moral values or anything like that. It's crazy. That's what the world is. So how can an amoral, no morals, how can an amoral, impersonal, meaningless and purposeless universe accidentally create personal moral beings who are obsessed with meaning and purpose? So, I mean, if the universe is, if we just, you know, uh, mutations, uh, um, genetic uh, changes and those kind of things, and then all of a sudden we got ourselves, we got humans now. I mean, how, how is it that we have, we can be so obsessed with meaning and purpose in our life? If evolutionary processes were involved in our development, then moral truths would be genetically encoded into our DNA. But moral truths not in our DNA, in our heart, in our soul. Studies, though, had not even been able to identify that kind of evidence of morality in your DNA. So the obvious failure then is realized when if our DNA contained moral code, then all cultures would be the same. Think about that. If humanity, if the, if morality was part of your DNA, 
And every human being, there's, what do we say, almost 8 billion people on the earth? If morality is part of the DNA of the human being, then every eight, all those 8 million people would have the same moral code. But we don't. And there's a lot of reasons why we don't. We'll get to those later. Okay, um, so number two, the individual. And uh, so in the case of the individual, the argument generally tends to be that there are no objective moral values and no objective moral duties. If it's an individual making a decision on what constitutes a moral good or bad, the person gets to make his own decision and, and identifies his own morality. The basis for this position, though, is that there tends to be a disagreement among individuals regarding right or proper behavior. So if we were to survey everybody in Harrisonville, find out where they get, where do they think they get their morality, you would get different answers for this for sure. So some would argue that their moral position is objective. But what happens to individual moralities when they collide with another, such as Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer, who cannibalized his victims? What do you do with that? I mean, did he get to... Okay, so in the, you got the, the shadow figure there. Put Hitler in that picture. Put Jeff. Put Jeffrey. Dom, let's see. Is that right? Jeffrey Dahmer. You guys remember him? I would. I would think so. So I mean, he he he's an individual. He gets to choose his morality. What he did was based on his moral code. Obviously, he's right. It's his choice. Anyway, so some would argue that the moral position is objective. But what happens to those morals, like like those men? How do you decide between differing moral opinions if each individual is the ultimate decision maker of what is good and bad? How do, you, how do, how do, how does a nation decide what's morally right? They're the choice. They get to, every, every person gets to choose their own morals. How does the statement, for me, rape is wrong, but it might be okay for you? How does that sound? That makes sense because that's really what we're talking about. The indiv- if the in- if the individual gets to decide, and not only that, but let's see if I got that. I don't have. I'll get to this the statement I was about to make here. With individuals, everything boils down to emotion and emotive responses to morals without moral global absolutes. People don't like absolutes unless they get to choose what the absolutes are. I mean, what about society? Can society establish morality? Today, especially, it's easy to point to society or culture and declare that behavior is moral or not moral. For example, our culture has determined that gay marriage is legitimate or abortion or any other difficult issue of the day is okay. Those are all moral decisions by, the, by, by our society. But what happens? And here, this is interesting. I don't know if you've term with the familiar familiar with the term intersectionality. That means uh, you're part of a group, multiple groups, and somehow or another those groups intersect. And when they do, it creates a conflict even within your own life. So let me just say this. Uh, if, if culture decides that gay marriage is okay uh, and so on, so on, what happens to a person's moral guidance when they're part of multiple cultures? Such as a multiple, okay, everybody, almost everybody is, is part of a community. Almost everybody is part of a workplace. Most everybody, at least in this room, is part of a church. So when culture overcomes, what, what, when, which culture, which one of those cultures, church, community, workplace, state, uh, 
your hunting club, your sewing club, whatever. I mean, all of those cultural things. What happens when they clash? What happens when culture overcomes one of the other groups? Which culture do you follow? Do you follow the community culture? Or do you follow the church culture? Do you follow the uh, the workplace culture? Which culture do you find that's, in, that's senior and all of that? Because they all may have different cultures and different moralities. Who or what is mankind mora- morally obligated to? Excuse me, just a moment. Turn this thing off here. My battery's dying. Okay, let me restate that question. Who or what is mankind morally obligated to? Real moral objections or obligations exist, but to whom do they exist? What about the reformers such as Martin Luther King or others who have fought to change culture? If society is a source of objective morality, then their efforts would have been immoral. Let that hang out there for just a minute. If the culture is this, here's here's the culture over here in a box, and it's and then somebody like Martin Luther comes in and and creates a conflict and says this culture is wrong and needs to be changed. Well, if culture sets the cult sets the the uh, the decision about what's moral, then what Martin Luther King would have he would have violated the the community's culture. Does that make sense? So, but some people would say, well, what he did was right. And I'm not disagreeing with what he did was right or anything. But, see, now I'm imposing my cultural view, my morals on his position to affect the morals of the of the community. So we changed the box to a rectangle because of what he wanted to do. And now the process is happening even today. We're going to try to change it from a, from a rectangle to a circle. Okay, so anyway, it's, it's a challenging question, this, this thing called morality. If culture is the source of objective morals, then here are some things that are acceptable, then have to be acceptable. Widow burning, which I mentioned, widow burning can be morally acceptable. Cannibalism can be morally acceptable. Murder can be morally acceptable. Unforgiveness can be morally acceptable. Can you imagine that? unforgiveness can be morally acceptable then? In certain situations, uh, rape can be morally acceptable. Gratuitously torturing innocent people can be morally acceptable. That's if you don't have the right uh, object that or who you are obligated to for the morals. But we have one last one, number four, and that is God. A transcendent creator is the only valid source of morality. And we're going to dig into that even further. So what is the motivation for morality then? If Think about King Solomon. King Solomon spent his entire adult life in many delightful pursuits, the majority of which brought him no contentment or satisfaction. When he sat down at the end of his life to write the book called the book of Ecclesiastes, he said at the end of the book, he came to the conclusion that life had but one true aim, one true motivation found in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. 
he said, he wrote this, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So when we're talking about moral behaviors, we're talking about moral duties. We're talking about the duties that we are responsible to God for. Paul Paul said this. Paul said basically the same thing in 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So our moral values based on what God is saying, the transcendent creator God, we find great gain in that. So finding an answer to life in the pages of the Old or the New Testament brings us to the understanding that God's desire that we live in accordance with his word is valid. Think about this. Solomon Solomon said, fear God and keep his commandments. And Paul says, live godly in order to be content. Therefore, living in accordance with, to, accordance with God and his word can be described as living a, a moral life. You want to know what a moral life is? Follow Solomon and follow Paul. Those, those men identify the morality of this community, this culture called Christianity, and what moral life looks like. Not just for us, but actually for the whole world. Because God is the God of, of the whole world. The atheists, however, would disagree with Solomon and Paul. They disagree with Paul. While we seek to find within their life content, while they seek to find life in their let me say this again. While they seek to find within their life, atheist life, contentment and duty, they don't look for it on the pages of Scripture. Atheists won't go to Scripture to find out where do they, where do they find contentment and, and, and uh, uh, peace in their life. They've concluded that behavioral matters are not defined by God, and in fact they would argue that morality is just another example of the evidence that God does not exist. Atheists will argue that God, that this is actually one of the proofs of God, is that there is such a thing as objective morality. So this is the whole topic. I've got about one minute left to finish, and I'm not going to get it all done. But anyway, we'll come back. We'll, we'll wrap it up the next week. But let me, let me see where I want to break. We'll, 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 we'll almost, we're a couple, just give me a couple minutes. Okay, I lost my place. That's crazy. Okay, so if that's the way an atheist feels, that, they're, that they don't have to have anything defined by God. In fact, they would argue that God doesn't exist because there is no value, there's no subject for objective morals. So the question then becomes, can we be good without God? That's a challenging question. Can we be good without God? So let me ask you this question, and on top of that, what does it mean to be good? So every one of us, I'm a good person. You know how they would do that, right? Well, I'm a good person. Well, what do you think about Pastor Brian? Well, he's a good person. Well, what do you mean by good? How do you define that? Are our values just social conventions? Just how binding are these social morals that we are forced to, to, to adhere to? What is the foundation of these conventions? So let me just say this as well, because this is the attack. So the atheists would come back. You say, can you, can, can you be good without morals? The atheist says, uh, "Are you saying that if I'm that if I don't believe in God, I can't be a good person?" That's what an atheist would attack you with. Can, do you mean I have to believe in God in order to be a good person? So I'm telling you, when I say, "Can you be good?" Uh, I'm not asking the question, "Can you be good without God?" That's that. I'm not trying to make anybody mad because too often Christians are attacked for making such claims. 
But in refuting it, and so they, we are refuted by declaring that we are arrogant. The question of can we be good without God is not the same thing as can people be good without a, a belief in God? Can people be good without a belief in God? And the answer to that question is, yeah, people can be good. You know, that's the, that's, a, that's the tough, difficult thing for a Christian to answer. People can actually be good. They can do the right thing. Paul even talked about that in Romans chapter 2, I believe it is, when he said that that uh, their conscience accused each other or, ex, or excused each other. And he also went on and he said uh, that they're... They, they did the things that the Bible said to do, even though they weren't under, committed to the law of the word of God. But they did what the Bible said in their own life and made a moral life for them, made, made a moral law for themselves. I'm going to turn there real quick just for the sake of not butchering up the word of God. Let me get my glasses on here. For when the Gentiles, verse 14, chapter 2, for when the Gentiles who knew not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, they's having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel, behold, thou art called unto me. He goes on. So that passage right there that I just read, basically what Paul is writing, he says, even if the Gentiles did what the law said to do and they didn't have the law, they weren't obligated to the law because they're Gentiles, they still had a position that was pleasing to God. And they were doing the right thing. And they didn't know they were doing the right thing. They just did the thing. So can a person be good without a belief in God? And the answer is yes, they can. It's true that anybody can live a good life daily, doing and behaving in an upstanding moral fashion without God entering into the picture. But that's not the actual question that I'm asking here. That's not the challenging question here. Um, let's let me get, catch up with this. The que- so th- that's not the question. Rather, the question ultimately is this. If there is a moral value in duties, are they objective, and what is their source? Are there objective moral values and duties? And if so, what is their source? So we've already eliminated it can't be, it can't be uh, evolution. It can't be the universe. It can't be uh, community. It can't be individual. So it's got to come from someplace. Where do morals come from? We all, every one of us, have a moral standard. You may not agree with mine. That's okay. Because I'm trying to be my, my moral standard. I'm trying to be the Bible. I'm trying to let the Bible be my moral standard, and I hope you are too. So then our morals are on the same page, literally same page. Okay, let me. we're going to finish up right here with that question. We're going to pause right here for the sake of time. Next week we'll finish up. We'll talk about the moral argument for God and the moral values, and I'm going to define what, uh, what uh, values are, what duties are. We'll look at all of those kind of things. And then we'll jump into the topic of evil and suffering. And uh, we'll get, we're getting close to finishing up this study. Any questions on morals? Does it make sense so far? I hope it was. I, I kind of rushed through that as quick as I could. Um, but 
Everybody has morals. Question is, where do they come from? What's your obligation to them? How important are they? And how do they apply on the proof of God? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. All right, let's pray. And uh, please come up and say hi to Pastor, Pastor Rotten and uh, visit with him a little bit. And, and then uh, we're done. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for tonight.